Story 9 of Stories Weird and Wonderful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Stories Weird and Wonderful by J. E. Muddock. Story 9 The Unbidden Guest A Story of a Christmas Joy. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men, rang out the Christmas bells joyously over the frozen snow, but to one person at least they greeted harshly, inharmoniously, for they were suggestive of a never-dying sorrow. This person was Sir Wilfrid Woofenden, baronet of Pine Tree Hall, situated on the outskirts of the charming little village of Blank in Berkshire. Sir Wilfrid was a tall, patrician-looking man, who had once been handsome, but, though not very old, his hair was silver, and his face seemed clouded with a sorrow that had no words. Pine Tree Hall had ever been noted for its hospitality, and under its roof on this bright crisp morning, when the bells from the village church rang out the old greeting, was assembled a large number of guests. But though Christmas Day always saw the hall crowded, its owner knew no joy, for the day was pregnant with a bitter memory, and to explain this we must tell something of his family history. He had married a lady of equal rank with himself, and she had borne him two daughters, Ethel and Muriel, and one son, Wilfred, the heir and hope of the house. He was a fine lad, and seemed to give promise of great things, but that promise was not redeemed, and, though he was not dead in fact, he was dead so far as his family was concerned. His chair in the hall was ever empty, his voice was never heard there, even his portrait had been taken down from its accustomed place, and no one would have had the hardihood even to have mentioned his name. If he survived his father, he would succeed to the title and estates, that is, the entailed portion of them. But the old baronet had rashly sworn that while he himself lived, his reprobate son should never touch a penny of his money. "'Let him go forth a beggar and starve in his shame and disgrace,' he had exclaimed in a fiery outburst of passion when he first heard that his one son and heir had brought dishonor upon his house. Truly the story was pitiable enough. Wilfred had been at Rugby, then at Oxford, but his career at college had been marked by excesses that were all but unpardonable, even in an undergraduate. He was engaged to be married to Hester Branscombe, the only daughter of Mrs. Branscombe, the widow of Major General Branscombe, who died in India. The Branscombes and the Woofendens were very old friends. Major Branscombe and Sir Wilfrid had been at college together, and it had been the dearest wish of Sir Wilfrid's heart that his son should marry Hester. But young Wolfenden was unusually wild, and though he professed to be madly in love with Hester, he went off with a ballet dancer, being first expelled his college, and having forged Mrs. Branscombe's name to a bill of exchange, whereby he obtained a large sum of money. Sir Wilfrid was thunderstricken when he heard the news that a scion of his house should have been guilty of such dishonor was almost impossible to believe. But alas, it was true enough, and the disgrace, the shame, and the sorrow the scapegrace brought upon the two families could scarcely be told by words. The baronet's pride was wounded to the quick, and he said he would never hold up his head again. He, of course, paid the money for the forged bill of exchange, but that was the least part of the mischief. The blow fell so heavily on Hester that for some time her life was despaired of. She gradually recovered, however, though it was generally acknowledged that she was never the same girl again. 
Her life was blighted, and the brightness of her youth had left her. She alone knew how much she loved the handsome daredevil Wilfred, who had often told her that without her life would not be worth living. She believed that he was sincere in what he said, and even when it was discovered that he had fled, she refused to believe at first that he had deceived her. But gradually the awful truth came home to her, and when she recovered from her illness, she put the sorrow deep down in her heart and had borne it there for ten long years. She was a guest at the hall on this Christmas day. In fact, she was never absent from these annual gatherings, for between her and the Mrs. Woofenden existed a sisterly friendship that nothing had ever interrupted. Pine Tree Hall was one of the old baronial mansions for which Berkshire is famous. It was said to have been originally built in Richard III's time, and though it had been enlarged and improved by successive proprietors, much of the original building still remained. It stood in a grand park, famous for its chestnuts and beeches, and its turrets and towers were a conspicuous landmark for many miles round. It was a family custom of the Wolfendens to worship in the village church on Christmas morning, and such of their guests as desired to do so accompanied them, while another custom was that dinner on Christmas Day was always served at two o'clock. The morning had been bright, with a sharp, frosty air. There had been a heavy snowstorm some days previously, and as no thaw had followed, the snow lay thick on all the countryside. As the afternoon approached, however, there was a change in the weather. The barometer rose, and snow commenced to fall again, and by the time dinner was ended it was snowing heavily. This put a stop to a sleighing party that had been organized, and something else for the entertainment of the guests had to be thought of. Although the old baronet was the soul of hospitality, his heart never seemed to be in the gatherings now, for it was on a Christmas day, strangely enough, that news of his son's shame and disgrace first reached him. The day, therefore, could not fail to painfully remind him of the shadow that hung over his ancient house, and though he never mentioned Wilfred's name, and would allow no one else of the household to mention it, there can be no doubt he thought much of him, and his memory must often have reverted to the time when the merry, golden-haired youngster was the life and joy of the old home. So keen was his sorrow even now that he liked to give vent to it in solitude, and would, when he could do so without discourtesy, retire to his library where he smoked and reflected on the terrible disappointment of his life. As the snowstorm kept the guests indoors, games of various kinds were indulged in, for there was a considerable number of young people present, and Ethel and Muriel took the lead in suggesting amusements to pass the time. Sir Wilford had been able to withdraw without being missed, and having shut himself in the library, he had gone to sleep. Soon after darkness had set in, and the lamps had been lighted, Muriel approached her sister and whispered, the butler tells me that old Nance is in one of her trance moods again. Would it not be fun to get her into the dining room? It might amuse the guests. No, answered Ethel, who was the elder. I cannot countenance that. Why expose Nance to ridicule? Oh, very well, Ethel, just as you like, replied her sister, a little piqued, for she did not attach the importance to the old woman's trance moods that Ethel did. Nance was an old servant of the family, having been in the service for over forty years, and had nursed all the children in their babyhood. She had been greatly attached to Wilfred, and had been heard to say that she never could understand why his father had been so harsh to him. But then, Nance had always been blind to his faults. She was a gentle, good-natured woman, but was generally referred to by her fellow servants as being a little bit cracked. She had earned this reputation owing to her belief in the supernatural. 
to her ghosts were very real things and sometimes she went off into a sort of waking trance when she babbled of all sorts of wondrous things in spite of this eccentricity or whatever one liked to call it she had been as true as steel to the family and every member of it loved and honored her but while muriel used to laugh at nance's visions ethel had firm faith in them and she was fond of being alone with nance and listening to some of the marvelous stories from the old woman's apparently inexhaustible repertoire when nance fell into one of her so-called trance moods she did not as might be supposed go to sleep but became restless and excited wandering about her room waving her arms wildly her eyes wide open but apparently blank and fixed on space in this state she mumbled and muttered sometimes incoherently at others she would tell a plain straightforward narrative of what she saw and so startling and weird were some of her visions that it required a tremendous lot of faith to believe in them when nance recovered from this peculiarly morbid condition she vowed that she had no recollection of anything she had said or seen she was generally prostrated for two or three days after one of her attacks which were liable to be brought on by any undue excitement that she should have been seized therefore on this christmas night was not astonishing for everyone in the house had been more or less excited during the day in a little while ethel stole away from the guests and went to nance's room the old woman was pacing up and down as usual her hair was disheveled her eyes fixed and looking almost like glass she took no notice of ethel's entrance and did not seem in the least disturbed ethel sat down on the chair and watched nance's face with absorbed interest and the first words she caught were these he is lying sick unto death and he babbles of his home it is a strange country the sun always shines fiercely and there are great forests and savage beasts of whom do you speak asked ethel softly but nance heeded her not and continued it is a cruel fever that has laid him low but he fights it and battles with it and now he grows strong again she paused in her walk rested her hand on the table and stood like one who was listening intently trying to catch some sound suddenly she exclaimed or rather she hissed the words out hark they are coming always coming i hear them the old familiar footsteps there was another pause then she said they cease and she resumed her walk presently she began to speak again seemingly with great agitation and as if she was suffering much anguish how the storm wind blows the waves are rolling mountains high and the ship is tossed to and fro and i see him poor dear poor dear his eyes are sad and wistful and he looks wan and worn ah she cried with a little scream the ship is lost she strikes the rocks then after a breathless pause she added joyfully he is saved he is saved who is it who is saved ethel asked for sometimes the old woman would answer questions when in this state nance however did not answer this time and in a few minutes her face was once again contorted with seeming anguish and wringing her hand she exclaimed death is threatening him again he lies on a little bed in the hospital ward the swinging lamps show me his poor face so drawn so white but there are good nurses about him they are sisters of mercy they wipe his lips they give him food and medicine but always in his eyes is that wistful pleading look ah why is he not forgiven as she uttered the latter sentence she gave a great sigh and seemed much agitated and then it suddenly occurred to ethel that it was her brother wilfred the old woman was talking about 
and unable to control her feelings, she broke into tears and said in a tone that scarcely rose above a whisper, "'Oh, Nance, is it of Wilfred you are speaking?' "'Hush!' responded the old woman. "'His name must not be mentioned here.' "'Nance, Nance!' cried the poor girl in her great distress. "'Tell me, does my dear brother live?' "'Hush! Hark! They are coming, always coming. I hear them, the old familiar footsteps.' Ethel was almost breathless now in her suppressed excitement, and she hung on every utterance of the strange old woman, for she had none of Muriel's skepticism. To her, all this was terribly real and fascinating. "'Once more there's a ship at sea,' continued the old woman, "'and I see him, but always with that sad, pale face, with the yearning, pleading eyes. Poor lad, poor lad, how he has suffered!' She became incoherent now, and mumbled something that it was impossible to make sense out of. Then suddenly she stopped again, and leaned on the table as before, repeating her former words. Hark! They are coming! Always coming! I hear them! The old familiar footsteps! There was another spell of incoherency, when once again she repeated, as if it were a refrain, Hark! They are coming! Always coming! I hear them! The old familiar footsteps! Ethel was greatly agitated. She felt as if she must cry out to relieve her pent-up feelings, but she managed to control herself. Nance's glazed eyes seemed to be staring through the wall now, and with upraised fingers she was repeating in a monotone, They are coming, coming, always coming. Nance, Nance, moaned Ethel, who is it you see? Tell, tell me, is it my dear brother? Yes, whispered Nance hoarsely, but speak not his name. He is always coming nearer. He moves slowly and with pain. Ah, oh, how sad, how sad. The fit seemed to be passing away, and she fell panting on a sofa, while her eyes lost their fixity and a cold perspiration broke out on her wrinkled face. But with startling suddenness she sprang to her feet and with a cry of joy exclaimed, He has come, he has come. Having uttered these words, she once more sank back in an exhausted condition. But thrilling with strange excitement, Ethel caught her hand and asked, pouring out her very soul, as it were, in the question, Where is he, Nance? He is at the woodman's hut, answered the old woman slowly, and then she seemed to collapse. The woodman's hut was the chief inn at the village, and almost beside herself with excitement, Ethel called in a servant to attend to Nance. Then, noiselessly as a shadow, she ran to her own room for what she had heard was to her a revelation. She hurriedly put on a thick pair of boots, enveloped herself in a huge cloak with a large hood that she drew over her head, and partly concealed her face, and without one thought of what the consequences might be, she ran down the stairs and slipped out of the house by a side door, and all unknown to anybody. The snow was falling heavily, the cold air revived her, and for the first time she began to think that she was doing a foolish thing, and being led by a phantom, yet she could not turn back. A something she could not account for seemed to draw her on. If her act was an act of madness, she could not help it. She must go. The village was a mile off, and like a phantom herself, she hurried along the country road. It was not likely she would meet anyone on that stormy Christmas night, for even the most depraved found shelter at such a time, and no honest people were likely to be abroad. But even if she should meet any of the neighbors or villagers, she had no fear of being recognized. It was a strange adventure for a young woman, but she did not pause to think whether she was right or wrong. All she knew was that some vague hope of seeing her beloved brother, 
whom she had not seen for ten long years, lured her on. She reached the village at last. All was silent. The yew trees at the cottage doors looked like veritable ghosts. The snow pattered softly down and lay in unsullied whiteness on the streets. The door of the woodman's hut was closed, but a cheery ruddy light from the great diamond-paned window of the kitchen streamed out across the snow-covered roadway. Now her courage failed her. Was she not bent on a foolish mission? Supposing the gabblings of old Nance were nothing more than gabblings, would she not look very foolish if she presented herself at the inn, which was her father's property, and the tenant her father's tenant? What excuse could she make? What could she say? She, the daughter of a baronet and lord of the manor, to be there on such a night at such an hour, for no better reason than that she had heard something uttered by an old woman in a trance. The ridiculousness of the situation struck her, so that she was actually turning away when a man came out of the doorway of the inn. She recognized him as the boots, and with a sudden impulse, as she drew the hood of her cloak closer about her face, she accosted him and asked, "'Have you a strange gentleman staying in the house?' "'Yes, mum.' Her heart leapt into her mouth, and she had to struggle to keep down her excitement as she asked the next question. "'Do you know his name?' He gave the name of Richardson, mum. Her hopes sank a little. "'Do you know where he has come from?' "'No, mum. But I think he's kind of a foreign gent. But he's very ill, and looks as if he was going to die.' Ethel almost cried out. The inn seemed to be swimming before her eyes, and she actually reeled so that she clutched the man's arm. "'Take me to this strange gentleman, and I will give you a sovereign,' she murmured. The Boots was much astonished, but the thoughts of a sovereign put everything else out of his head, so he pushed open the inn door and let her in, trying to get a glimpse of her face as she came into the light. Down the long passage he led her, and up the stairs to the first landing, where he was going to knock at a door, but she stopped him by grasping his arm. "'Is this his room?' she asked. "'Yes, mum. It's his sitting-room. "'Thank you. That will do,' she said. Then, with trembling hands, she opened her purse, took therefrom a sovereign, and put it into the man's hand. "'You can leave me now.' Boots was amazed at her strange conduct. There was a mystery going on, he thought, and he was curious to know what it was, so he stayed at the bottom of the stairs. The poor girl, feeling faint and weak, tapped lightly at the door. A man's voice called out, "'Come in.' She turned the handle and entered. Seated in a chair before a blazing fire was a heavily bearded man. A huge fur rug was about his shoulders, and his cheeks were hollow. His face was wan and pale. With a low cry, Ethel sprang forward, and falling on her knees, uttered the one word, Wilfred. The man seemed amazed, and his white face became whiter. What, what, what does this mean? he stammered. You are Wilfred Wolfenden she moaned, looking up into his sunken eyes. Not the same I knew ten long years ago, but my heart tells me you are my brother. And you are Ethel, your sister. A great sob broke from the man, and then he flung his arms around her, and they sobbed together, all unconscious that peering in at the doorway was the amazed boots, looking as if he had been galvanized. But he recognized Ethel now, and tearing down the stairs, he rushed breathless into his master's presence, and exclaimed, "'Master, master, what think you? "'The strange gentleman up there is no other than young Mr. Wilfred, from the hall, "'and Miss Ethel is along with him.' "'The brother and sister remained locked in each other's arms for some minutes. "'Then Wilfred briefly told her in outline his adventures. "'He had wandered the wide world over. "'He had been nigh unto death in India with jungle fever. "'He had been shipwrecked off the Cape of Good Hope on his way home. 
A relapse of illness sent him into the hospital at the Cape, where he was tenderly nursed. Then, feeling that his days were numbered, he came back to the old country, for he wanted to see the dear faces once more. He did not, however, intend to make himself known. He had no fear of being recognized, for he was utterly changed. His intention was to go to the hall on the following day, under an assumed name, and say that he had known Wilford in India. He relied upon the hospitable season for being admitted. Then, when he had once again looked upon the old place and the faces of those who were still dear to him, he was going back to India, never to return. Old Nance's trance, clairvoyance, second sight, or whatever it was, had upset all this, and in half an hour Ethel had her brother comfortably seated in a fly provided by the landlord of the inn, and then they drove to the hall, alighting before they reached the gate. Ethel smuggled her brother in, and the butler, who had been many years in the family, and had always been very fond of Wilfred when he was a boy, was taken into confidence. The wanderer was led to the library, Sir Wilfred being with his guests. Then Ethel hurried upstairs to change her boots and take off her wet cloak, and having arranged her ruffled hair, she went to the drawing-room. On her father's face a frown had gathered at her entrance. "'Where have you been to?' he asked. "'You have been missed and hunted for, but could not be found.' "'I have been doing a solemn duty, sir,' she said, "'and I have something to say to you. "'Will you please come with me to the library?' "'Then she beckoned her sister, "'and the three went to the library together. "'Ethel entered first. "'Wilford was sitting on the sofa, "'looking very ill indeed. "'The old baronet was amazed "'at the presence of a stranger, "'but some intuition told Muriel who it was. "'Ethel took her brother's hand, "'and bringing it to her father's, she said, "'Father, this is your erring son.' God has sent him here tonight to crave your forgiveness. The baronet fairly staggered and with a passionate gesture drew his hand away. What is this mockery? he growled angrily. It is no mockery, father, answered Ethel solemnly, while Muriel folded her brother in her arms with a great cry of joy. Father, continued Ethel, the ringers rang the bells in the village church this morning. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. She could say no more. For a moment or two the old man seemed undecided. Then, with a gulp in his throat, he grasped his son's hand, and in a raspy voice exclaimed, "'You are my son. There shall be peace and goodwill between us. I pray God to forgive me as I now forgive you.' Ethel slipped out of the room. In a few minutes she returned with her arm linked in that of Hester Branscombe. "'Hester,' she whispered, "'the wanderer has returned. The lost sheep has come back to the fold.' This is Wilfred, my brother, and once your lover. With a cry, Hester sank down and covered her face with her hands. Wilfred raised her up. Hester, he said tenderly, do not hate me and believe me when I solemnly vow that I have never ceased to love you. Nor I you, she murmured. That memorable Christmas night, the angel of sorrow departed from Pine Tree Hall as the angel of joy entered with his unbidden guest. To old Nance was due the reconciliation, for it was owing to her strange and even miraculous power that Wilford was there, and she was called in to share the joy. But for long months the wanderer hovered between life and death, for his health had been much shattered. But with such nurses and such prospects, dying was out of the question, and slowly health came back, and before the next new year was many weeks old, he led Hester Branscombe to the altar. He had sinned and had been guilty of much folly, but he had purged his sin by suffering and anguish, and the joy was the greater in contrast to the sorrow that all had endured. It was a singular thing that old Nance never had another trance. 
but a little while before the christmas following the one when she told of wilford's coming she was found dead in her bed she had died in the night calmly and without a pang the family were inconsolable for her loss and over her grave in the sweet village churchyard they erected a column of pure white marble on which was carved this line here sleeps one of the most faithful of servants end of story nine recording by colleen mcmahon